It's good to see you this morning. I'd like to address myself to a topic that is very appropriate because we come now in the week to the place where the shadows of the cross fall on us in, in, uh, in ways that we cannot evade. It is the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, and it concerns the fact that our Lord had the unmitigated goal to declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas and Philip had problems with this. Thomas was always the one who doubted the veracity of statements, and Philip was the inquisitive one. Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. They were loved in love in Jesus, but skeptical about him. They saw, but they did not believe. They could not take the leap of faith. Thomas the doubter and Philip the inquisitor. Good men, without a doubt, but they just weren't quite sure of Jesus. Therefore, when it came to their personal faith, they were usually on the defensive. Now, when we visit the 14th chapter of John, we notice that the cross is all around us. And yet, as we look at John and think about Jesus, there's a certain calmness in the manner that our Lord looked at the cross. He said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This mysterious calmness is something that we all wish we had. Where does it come from? It comes from God the Father, who knows how the death of his Son will restore us to the Father. It comes from the death of the Son, because he erases the curse that was found in the eating of the apple and in our insistence on being in charge and telling God to get out of the way. He says, I go to prepare a place for you on the other side, on the other side of death, on the other side of your banishment in Genesis 3. And I will return for you so that you may be with me in eternal bliss and happiness forever. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he goes on to say, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. This is when Thomas couldn't take it. He said, Lord, how in the world do we know where you're going? How do we know the way? And a little later, Philip gets in with his nervous self and asks, Lord, show us the Father, and it will satisfy us. Thomas and Philip, we've been with our Lord for three years. Remind me of committees in the church uh, where very often after we have tried to analyze a problem in committee and then get out before the church conference, the same people who ask questions in the privacy of that place where we could have dealt with it, raise them again, the doubter and the questioner. And very often we wonder if it isn't true that in all churches, regardless of their denominational affiliation or organizational infrastructure, don't they all have a few people who raise questions? 
Now, I know it doesn't happen in the vestry here, but in the deacon board at Ebenezer, we had a lot of people who raised questions, and I always thank God when they were absent from me, because we'll get out of here a little sooner, and I won't have to be repetitive. Well, here were two disciples who were usually on the defensive. Sometimes they did get on the defensive because they felt they didn't have all of their answers. You know, when somebody gets defensive, we usually tell them, don't get upset about this. We often conclude that if a person gets too defensive, it is a tacit admission of that person's guilt, whether they are guilty or not, and we need to examine this. Why are people so defensive in our time? Well, we have a legal system that encourages people to be defensive, to be self-protecting. Look at the governor of New Jersey. And think for a moment about what has happened to us in our system of jurisprudence. We have been taught never to own up to our own guilt, never to declare that we are wrong. No, I am innocent until proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not going to admit anything at all. Now, in this age of science, when we blame most of the wrongs we see on extenuating circumstances over which we have no control, I am really enlightened by the fact that those who are defensive constantly are trying to evade God. What did that brilliant preacher, P.T. Forsyth, say? He died in 1921. He says, when God is pressing on us like Jesus is pressing for God on us, he says the constant pressure of a redeeming God upon his fallen world is never met with great favor. He also says, do you know that the more God does for us, really the less we appreciate it. The greater the favor that is done to us, the more fiercely we resent it because we want to be in charge if it does not break us down and make us grateful. I had to learn that myself. The, the pushing of God so that I could see what it really meant to go through sickness happened to me when I went to Midtown Emory to visit a member of our church. And as I was crossing the street, somebody who wasn't watching hit me and knocked me up in the air, a pedestrian. I fell down and broke my leg. Now, when I fell and broke my leg, I was thinking not about nonviolence. I wasn't worried about what Dr. King said about that. I just tried to find out if the man had stopped. And they said, yes, he stopped. I said, don't bother me. Let me get up. I'm going to take care of this myself. But you know, when I was knocked down, I couldn't get up. When I was knocked down, the community came and rescued me. It was raining. Somebody took off their coat and made a pillow for my head. And I thank God for it. Sometimes we resist God's grace unless we find it impossible to resist. And he has to break us down to make us grateful. The effect of Christ's death upon human nature is not always gratitude. We resist the constant pressure of a redeeming God who hopes to do something for us. Now, we have the other end, 
Thomas and Philip. They all want to be responsible for what they have done. And so to protect themselves and others from shame and embarrassment, some of us are always victims. Some of us say, no, it isn't your fault. I am to blame. Now, this defensive system has degrees of intensity. First, we realize that we cannot save ourselves. When we say, I am to blame, that's an egotistic drive. It was George Bernard Shaw who was reputed to have said, I don't want anyone to die for me. I can manage. And yet, if we do manage, it is consistently a stonewalling of what is really around the corner. And we have only demonstrated when we survive that way that we can live in a prison. Jesus came to set us free from this exhaustive behavior, to defend ourselves no matter what. He came to set us free so that we would know what God has done and created for us. And it is an expensive price. That's the reason we see the cross of Jesus Christ. The price tag was Calvary. To receive this pardon means accepting his claim on us. He not only came to give us good things, he died to save us so that we could be reunited with the Father. He is the bridge between us on earth and the Father in heaven. And yet he says, let God's kingdom in heaven come on earth. So he talks about the unity that we have. The love of Jesus kills our self-love. It kills our tendency to say, I don't want anybody to die for me. I can manage. Conversion is dying with Christ to our pride and our self-protection and living with him as our ruler and redeemer. Now, how do we get back to the Father's house? Well, our Lord has an answer. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, when the disciples heard this, they couldn't understand it because they said Jesus seemed very much like they were. They couldn't understand how he was the way, the truth, and the life. When he says, I am the truth, they said, my goodness, he is just like us. Jesus is hungry and sleepy, just as we are, and he is the truth. He was harassed and arrested and executed by Jewish leaders, and he is the truth. And now he's going to prepare a place for us. How in the world is this to be done? When he seems to inherit the weaknesses of our finitude and the humanness that we all know, how in the world is this true? I'm not going to talk about the way and the life. But let me just say to you that God in Christ is our life and is our way. The way to the Father's house. And that's the place where we all want to go. That's the reason each year we celebrate this season. Because it reminds us that a way has been opened, the truth has been told, and life is given to us. And when you think about why we celebrate this particular time of the year, I'm reminded of a story that is told about a young boy who was carried by his mother to Springfield, Illinois, to see the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. It was a hundred years since Lincoln had died. And as they approached 
He is home in Springfield, Illinois. It was late at night. But the boy noticed that the lights in Lincoln's house were still on. And he turned to his mother and she said, Mom, Lincoln's been dead a long time. Why are there still lights in his house? Mother said, I don't know. He said, well, let me tell you, I think I know. I just think he forgot to turn them off when he left. The reason we celebrate Easter is because God did not turn the lights off. Because he is the light of the world. And because his strong spirit wins us to the way and the truth and the life. If we are Christians, we won't go into the world baptizing its darkness. But we will go into the world following in his footsteps and trying to show others the life that we find in him.